do something exciting today. We are going to encounter the eternal, infinite God, which I'm sure you encountered quite a bit during worship. And so, Father, I bless every person that's here today. I thank you, my Lord and my God, that you know exactly where they are. You see in our hearts what we can't see. You see the things that you're trying to change that we are completely oblivious about. You see our needs before we even ask. And so I ask today, Lord, that as your word is shared, that you would speak to each person here, that not one of them would leave this place without having had a personal encounter and revelation from you and your word in Jesus' name. And everyone said, Amen. Now, contrary to popular belief, the word amen does not mean you may open your eyes now. Uh, it, it actually means let it be so, or it is so. But I'm going to ask you to close your eyes again, and I'm going to ask you to picture something, if you wouldn't mind. We're doing a lot of creative thinking today, but we know you're up for it, right? Because your world changes. I want you in your mind to create a picture of eternity. Easy, right? What does it look like? Describe it to yourself. Create a picture in your mind of infinity. Maybe mathematicians can write down a formula for it, but I want you to try and picture infinity. What does infinity and eternity look like? Can you fully comprehend it? Well, you can, you can, amen, you can open your eyes again. Truth of the matter is, because of the world we live in and we're born into, anything we try and picture typically has a beginning and an end. Typically has boundaries, limitations, not so. And although it might seem overwhelming to you to think about our God as infinite and eternal and try and comprehend infinity and eternity, it is one of the most amazing and intrinsic characteristics of the God we serve. Now, we in the series looking at the attributes of God. I know people who've been saved for millennia, for centuries, and they still don't know who God really is. And so we are going through the series for you to understand who is this God that made me? And if I am made in his image, that means if I understand him, I can be who he created me to be. Amen. And if you have not downloaded, please go to our website, download that Attributes of God devotional. It is probably one of the best things my wife has written, and she's written a lot of stuff. But I want to tell you, even as someone who lives with my wife, and I hope, husbands, that you do the same, this was revelatory to me. And understanding this, the idea of eternity, the idea of infinity runs like a revelatory river throughout all of Scripture, that as you work through Scripture, you will see this everywhere. In fact, most of our treasured biblical truths rest on the foundation of God's eternal, infinite nature. I'm not going to go to all of them, but the truth of the matter is that the idea of infinity is right from Genesis 1 verse 1 through to the end of Revelation. In the beginning, God, what did God do? He created the heavens and the earth. Now, if, if you create something in your workshop, 
Who's bigger, the one who creates or the thing that's created? And the whole universe fits inside God like a tiny little thing that he oversees from his eternal infinite realm. And you know what's cool about it? Is that he invites us to live from this realm as well. It's not like we're trying to just understand God. It's God saying, I want you to be my image bearers here and live from the same realm and way of thinking that I do. Genesis 21 says, you are the everlasting God. One Kings, behold, heaven, even the highest heavens can't contain you. Romans, don't go Roman over there. I'm just reading a few quick things. His eternal power and Godhead. Romans 9 calls him the eternally blessed God. And what I love about Ephesians 3.11, it says that he has an eternal purpose that is good. You see, God's not just living forever, wondering what to do with himself. He has an eternal purpose, and he's got it all mapped out, and you're a part of it. And if you go Roman over to Romans 8, 28, it says, For God works all things together for the good, for those who love him and are called according to his purposes. What purposes? His eternal purposes. This isn't our home. We are working towards something far greater. But here, as we are here today, we can pull the eternal, infinite realm and God into our here and now. Isn't that cool? You know, I know that it's hard to kind of fathom these things. There's a lot of things about God that we can't comprehend with our finite minds. But would you agree that a God who is small enough to be understood isn't big enough to be worshipped? The very concept of God is that we stand in awe. In Revelation, they constantly get a new revelation of God, and they go, whoa, holy, holy, whoa, another river. Whoa, we're never going to get to the end of seeing who God is. New dimensions, new attributes. God, by definition, must be incomprehensible. So have you ever tried to figure God out? I, I have really. I, I have sometimes said, God, don't you just want to think like me for a moment because... You know, if I were you, I would do it like this. And then when everything's said and done, I'm like, I'm so glad you're not like me. What does it mean that his qualities are infinite and eternal? In fact, I'm going to just, you know, the devotional that I hope many of you in our connect groups are working through. Carol wrote this in this particular section. His wisdom, his love, his holiness, goodness, justice, mercy, and every other characteristic will never be exhausted. We will never get to the end of our discovery of him. So I want to tell you a tale of two widows. Is that okay with you? Even if it isn't, with or without your permission, I have the microphone. I want to tell you a tale of two widows, and these are amazing stories that, that really give us hope that no matter how desperate your circumstances are, the God who is eternal and infinite can turn things around for any one of you here. Inshallah. I don't know what your circumstances are, but Pastor Sam, that word, my brother, we're in the darkness. <laughs> literally a fair amount of the time. Some of you are going through desperate things. Some of you are struggling economically. I want you to be encouraged by what God shows you is possible when you hide yourself in him and trust in him. 
So the first story, the first widow we're going to look at, that's a, a picture of the first widow right there. They discovered it in an archaeological dig uh, 100 years ago. Actually, I'm going to go back to that widow because some of you want to see what she looked like. Let me give you some background to the story. Both of these stories involve a widow, and both of them involve a specific prophet. Now, how many of you have heard of the prophet Elijah? Yeah, he was a pretty radical prophet. He may be called one of the greatest prophets in the Bible. But here's Elijah, and there is a drought in the land that has been going on for years because they're not serving God. And in the midst of that drought, Elijah as a prophet is able to see from this unseen, infinite, eternal realm. He's able to engage with God. And God says, despite the drought, with everyone battling, Elijah, I'm going to give you a brook. A brook. Yeah. If you're Afrikaans, that might mean something else. But... Oh, Oh, you got it. Yeah. So he goes to this place where there's a supply of water. And he's going, well, man shall not live on water alone. And suddenly wild animals are bringing him meat and bread. How cool is that? So he's hanging out there for quite a while. And eventually the brook starts to dry up and God says this. Then the word of the Lord came to him. Arise, go to Zarephath, which belongs to Sidon and dwell there. Behold, I have commanded a widow there to do what to feed you so when he comes to the gate of the city behold doesn't it just you know make you like want to read further behold a widow was there gathering sticks and he looks at her and he goes she's gathering sticks man that means she got food that means she got plenty she's gonna feed me and he called to her and said bring me a little water in a vessel that i may drink if you want to sound impressive when you go to lunch today, just say that to your hosts. Bring me a little something in a vessel that I may drink. And as she was going to bring it, he called to her and said, Bring me a morsel of bread in your hand. You might also sound quite posh if you say that at lunch today. And she said, As the Lord your God lives, I have nothing baked. I only have a handful of flour in a jar and a little oil in a jug. And now I'm gathering a couple of sticks that I may go in and prepare it for myself and my son that we may eat it and die. Can you see the faith on this woman? And Elijah said to her, Do not fear. Well done, Tobacco. Good word. Do not fear. Go and do as you have said, but first make me a little cake of it and bring it to me. First make it for me. Don't you think that's a little ungentlemanly, impolite? It's typically in our culture, you know, when you have a big meal, it's like women and children first, like the Titanic. But he says, I, you've got very little here, so you better make me first. And he says, for thus says the Lord, the God of Israel, if you do that, the jar of flour will not be spent, the jug of oil shall not be empty until the day that the Lord sends rain upon the earth. Woo. This is not just flowery speech. She went and did as Elijah said, and she and her household ate for many days. The jar of flour was not spent, neither did the jug of oil become empty, according to the word of the Lord. Isn't that incredible? How many of you would like a grossly, grossly, a grossly gross supply of groceries like that? 
Carol and I lived like that a bit while we were pastoring in Namibia. I mean, our children will tell you for, for probably over a year, our prayers were, Jesus, thank you for this meal. Would you please provide the next one? We never went without a meal. You've heard of food being dropped at doorsteps. We had that regularly. Food arriving. People just, hey, you know, I slaughtered one goat too many. Would you like one? God does these things. Now, the second story is like it, and it's also very encouraging. Now, the second story, we are talking about another prophet that Elijah anointed after him called Elisha. How many of you heard of Elisha? Right. Elisha was an amazing prophet, did most incredible things. And we pick up here. Now, the wife of one of the sons of the prophets cried to Elisha, your servant, my husband is dead. You have to say it like she cried, right? And you know that your servant feared the Lord, but the creditor has come to take my two children to be his slaves. How many of you owe money and are scared they're going to take your children to be slaves? In this culture, that's how they did it. What do you mean some of you would? Oh, okay. Elisha says, so what can I do for you? Tell me. She doesn't say, well, just meet my needs. He says, what have you got? What have you got? And she said, your servant has nothing in the house except a jar of oil. Man, she's worse off than the other one. At least the other one had flour. So he said, go outside, borrow vessels from all your neighbors, empty vessels, and not too few of them. Then go in and shut the door behind yourself and your sons and pour into all these vessels. And when one is full, set it aside. And she went from him, shut the door behind herself and her sons. And as they poured, they brought the vessels to her. And when the vessels were full, she said to her son, bring me another vessel. And he said to her, there is not another mummy. And the oil stopped flowing. She came and told the man of God, and he said, Now, go and sell the oil and pay off your debts, and you and your sons can live off the rest. Aren't those two cool stories? I want to look at three quick things that I believe God wants to renew our minds on by looking at these stories. Because these are two people who were ultra-desperate, and yet the eternal, infinite realm invaded their lives. The one is going to die, and the other one's going to lose her children. And yet, instead of seeing them the way the world sees them, God sees them from an eternal perspective. I don't know how you see yourself, but most of, our see, most of us see ourselves based on our circumstances. Based on what we don't have, not on what we do have. If you had asked either of those widows, so what do you have? They would say, I got nothing. Um, nothing. It's over. When you just have a little bit, that's enough for God. And he looks at them and he saw two things. Well, he saw a lot more, but I'm just going to say, firstly, his eternity saw them as daughters that he had created in his image. He valued them. He loved them. And he saw what was possible. He, was God worried? Is God ever worried? Jesus said, don't worry about tomorrow. If we live in God, there is never, ever, ever, ever anything to worry about. He saw that their present circumstances did not define them. And their present circumstances did not define their future. What are your present circumstances? Are you letting them define you? 
Are you letting them lie to you about your future? He knows his infinity can meet every need that you could possibly have. You see, it's his infinity that brings the miraculous. The whole of the society, if you look at them, was abandoning them. God doesn't abandon his children. And I want to say this. God looks, and he was about to use their dying desperation to display a deluge of his divine deliverance. How many of you are in some dying desperation where God wants to come and display a deluge of his divine deliverance? The other thing he saw, which no one else saw, is they still had something to give. I have nothing, just this little jar of oil. Well, then why do you say nothing? God, I have nothing. I just, you know. God knew that they had all that he needed to do the miracle. Elijah, as God's chosen major prophet of the day, who had been living from God's infinite eternal supply, drinking and eating wild animals. I don't know if he petted them when they came or not. I would have, I would have befriended them and tamed them. But he doesn't go to the religious. He doesn't go to the influential. He doesn't go to the elite. He goes to the lowliest in the town. Isn't it interesting that when we see people who learn to live and see others from eternity, not just the way God sees you, but the way we see others, we'll live like that. What did Jesus do? Jesus came from eternity to show us as people how we could live from eternity and how eternity sees you and other people. Because Jesus hung out with people the religious leaders said were worthless. They scoffed at him. How can you be a prophet? You hang out with sinners, prostitutes, tax collectors. Apologies to anyone who works for SARS. Jesus went to the ones who were considered unworthy, disdained, rejected, condemned. He goes across a stormy sea to reach one demon-possessed man that has been rejected, tied up in chains, thrown out from the community. Everyone wishes he would just go away. And the entire town is changed because of that one man. He goes and hangs out with a woman, which firstly was not really right for a rabbi to just sit and talk to a woman. But a Samaritan woman, Nochal. And Samaritans were considered totally, what is the word? Despised, thank you, Lord, by the Jews. You, if you touched the Samaritan, you were unclean. Not only does he go to a Samaritan, he goes to a Samaritan woman who the whole town has rejected because she's had five husbands and the man she was with now is not her husband. <laughs> Jesus goes to her and a whole town gets saved. Do you know that sometimes the people that no one else sees, the lowliest, the lost, sometimes the ones that are the key to unlock a community. You see, in the eyes of eternity, those who are lost will be first in the kingdom. And Jesus said those who are first will end up being lost. And he has invited us to live from this eternal realm with him.
You see, when Jesus came, he didn't just come to say, I'm infinite, look at me, worship me. He said, I'm a man, I'm going to show you how to live from the infinite eternal realm just like I do. Do you know that we were created for eternity? We're like, uh, eternity seems so long. Adam and Eve were going to live forever. Why do you think God banished them from the tree of life? Because once they sinned, he said, I wanted them to live forever. I never wanted them to die. Death was never part of God's plan. But once they sinned, he said, I have to separate you from the tree because I don't want sin to live forever. So he made another plan. He's going to restore a new earth, a new heaven. I don't know what your picture of eternity in heaven is. Harps on clouds for most people. Man, that's just downright boring. We want to go there. God is going to create it the way we were meant to do it right from the first time with no pain. God is always creating. You will never, you can take everything that you enjoy and multiply it by infinity. And that's what we'll be doing with God. We were created for this. Jesus stands in front of the religious leaders and he says something crazy, but it shows you he knows where he comes from. They said, Abraham is our father. He says, can I tell you a secret? Before Abraham was, I am. Now that got him riled up because that word I am is the word for God, the holiest word for God. He knew who he was. How did he choose to live? If you had eternity and infinity, how would you live? Man, I'd have the biggest mansion in the best city. With a... How did Jesus live? <laughs> just, just say sure. Can I hear a South African amen? Sure. <laughs> you see, Jesus tapped into the invisible realm. He said, I only do what I see the Father doing. So what is the eternal realm doing? That's what we need to be doing. And I think people are burning themselves out and getting all frustrated and exhausted and all the rest because they're doing a whole lot of stuff that Father in Heaven is not telling us to do. There's this incredible scripture that Paul writes to the Hebrews. And he says, Hebrews chapter 12, that we should look to Jesus, the founder and perfecter of our faith, who for the joy set before him endured the cross despise in its shame, and is now seated at the right hand of the throne of God. How did Jesus endure the cross? For the joy set before him. If I say to you guys, you're going to be cruelly tortured. You're going to be beaten, whipped. I mean, it is going to be, and I describe what you're about to go through. How many of you would experience joy? Because we're looking at the moment. Some of you are carrying crosses at the moment. When you see from an eternal perspective, you see what's going to happen on the other side of the cross, and it brings incredible joy. And Jesus saw you and you and you and you and you on the other side of the cross being reconciled to God. And he said, it's worth it. Some circumstances you can only go through if you have an eternal perspective. And we see this little tension, don't we? The widows have a cross to bear, and they get instant deliverance. Then we have scenarios where throughout the Bible it tells us to persevere and endure through certain sufferings, right? So which one is it? Crowd to God, immediate miracle, or crowd to God for endurance? It's both. Anyone confused? 
is both. So how do I pray after working through this tension most of my life is, Lord, I realize that what I'm going through right now is either something you've sent my way so that you can make me more like you, revealing idolatry in me, revealing things in me that shouldn't be there that are creating the problems because it is the circumstances around me are the consequences of my own choices. So he's showing me some things that I need to change so I can have more of his glory. So God, show me in the gap between now and the deliverance and the miracle and the solution, how to change so that I can be more like you. But I'm still crying out for the miracle and trusting for the miracle. But mind the gap. Those who have ever been to England and London, mind the gap. You want to just jump ahead into that miracle and get upset when it's not there, but God's going to keep working on that thing in your soul that's hindering him from filling you. I want us to read together 2 Corinthians 4. If you have your Bibles, just open there, 2 Corinthians 4. It's a great, great verse, 17 to 18. And I'm not putting it on the screen because I want people to use their Bibles in church. It's a good thing, right? It says this, Paul, who had suffered so many things in his life, he said he'd had good days and bad days, but some of his bad days were really bad. For the light and momentary afflictions are preparing for us an eternal weight of glory beyond all comparison. The joy set before him. As we look not to the things that are seen, but the things that are unseen. For the things that are seen are transient, passing away, but the things that are unseen are eternal. I believe the reason most Christians are struggling with anxiety and worry and getting so distracted by all these things is because our eyes and our value system and our hope is in the seen realm. The unseen realm where God lives is not some place you go when you die. It's all around us right now. You just step through the veil. Hey, Dad. I wake up in the morning. I just see myself in the morning, Father. Morning, Jesus. Morning, Holy Spirit. <laughs> Ah, oh, that's great. Thank you. Would you fool me for today? Would you give me grace? I come before your throne of grace. Uh, I want to do everything with you today. Because if you live from the unseen realm, that is the eternal realm, and that's going to last forever. Everywhere you look today, God is shaking the idols of the world. Would you agree? Have you ever been more depressed by reading the news? Man, we could have nuclear holocaust on our hands. So What? But the economy could fall. So what? Which economy are you living from? The Elijah, where wild animals bring you meat and bread. Notice it wasn't cucumbers. Lettuce. No, sorry. I, darling, I'm sorry. It just means that it's okay to eat meat now and then. But those whose hope is in the unseen realm, they'll never be shaken. While the nations have been shaken. It doesn't mean God's always going to give you immediate deliverance. But then in all things we experience, he has an eternal plan that is working out for your good. Uh, the next two I'm going to go through really quickly. Surrender connects us to God's infinite supply. He didn't send the prophet to meet her need. Did you notice that? He didn't say, Elijah, there's a woman who's desperate. Just like you've had miracles, go release a miracle there. He said, go to her. I've ordered her to feed you. Uh -huh. <laughs> Don't some of you find that funny? 
You see, here's a secret to the kingdom. Instead of first meeting her need, he sent her a need to meet. Hmm. Knowing that by surrendering the little she had, she would unlock the infinite supply of God's. Remember Carol's message on feeding the 5,000? She shared on this really well. Go back and listen to it if you, if you want to get more. But surrender is the key to unlocking God's infinite supply. That little boy. We have 5,000 men, probably 15,000 people sitting here. How are we going to feed them? There's no food. We have a little boy with uh, two fish and five loaves. But, you know, what will that do? Give me the little you have. Surrender it to me. How much could Jesus have made if there were a billion people there? Do you think those two fish and five loaves would have fed a billion people? Because it's his infinity. He doesn't run out. If she had brought a thousand million zillion vessels, they would have all been filled with oil. Are you hearing me? Now, this doesn't mean that we should give away all we have and somehow hope to win the eternal jackpot of infinity. But it does mean that I surrender all I am, I surrender all I have, and I say, God, take these and use them as you wish. I'm going to be spirit-led. I'm going to ask your guidance in how to use what you've given me, and I'm going to be prepared to give sacrificially when you ask. And lastly, we were created to have the infinite God dwell within us. He breathed into Adam and Eve and brought them to life. The first thing Jesus did when he was raised from the dead was to say, you've been made holy. Now you can carry my presence again. And he breathed on them and they received the Holy Spirit. Is Holy Spirit God? So therefore, is Holy Spirit infinite? Can your soul, is your soul like, I've only got a little soul, Holy Spirit, so I can just get a little touch of you there. Your soul is infinite. Look at the person on your left. Now turn to the person on the right of them and say, your soul is infinite. <laughs> now turn to the person on your left and tell them how much you hate it when the pastor tells you to turn to the person next to you. So I'm closing with this, but Ephesians 3 and 5 say some incredible things. In Ephesians 3.19, Paul says, he prays, I pray that you would have power, that you would know the love of Christ that surpasses knowledge, that you may be filled with all the fullness of God. I'm sorry, wait, what was that? That you may be filled with all the fullness of God. Anyone here, please raise your hands if you are filled with all the fullness of God, because most of us aren't. Most of us are happy with just a touch. Oh, Jesus, you touched me in worship. That was wonderful. I can't wait till church next Sunday. I've just been born again into a cruise ship, and Jesus is there in the room with me. But you know what? If Carol and I never spoke, never said a word, or once in the morning, good. Let me just read that letter you wrote me last night. Thank you. I'll see you tomorrow morning. What kind of relationship would that be? But that's how many Christians relate to God. And in Ephesians 5.18, he says, Be continuously 
going on, being filled with the Holy Spirit. That means you're not just filled once. We should be filled all the time. Making space means I'm constantly pressing in to meditate on his word, to dwell in his presence, to dwell in his power, taking him with me everywhere I go, being aware of his presence everywhere. We've just said to our staff that we, we, Carol started this thing where our staff reads a book a month. And we are looking this month at Brother Lawrence's practice in the presence of God, and I'm closing with this. Brother Lawrence was a 16th century monk in, in France, and there was a whole lot of error, and he just decided, I'm going to seek God. It took him 10 years to find the real deal because there weren't any Bibles. And, and he says this, I made it my goal for the next 30 years to never get out of God's presence. I wanted to spend every minute of every day in his presence. He was not a leader. He was the chef. He was the cook for a monastery. This humble cook, he said, my best times in God's presence were not during the times of prayer together, but while working in the kitchen, scrubbing the floors. I learned that abiding in his presence does not just mean isolating ourselves from the world to be with him. It must become intimacy in all of life wherever we go. And as a result of him pressing into that realm so much, this humble cook, the Pope himself, senior cardinals, even the King of France would come and ask his opinion on things because of the glory that was on him. How many of you would like some of that? Can we stand together? I want us to go from this place recognize that because we serve a loving God who is infinite and eternal, doing all things for our good, we need never worry about our circumstances or challenges. But at the same time, we want more of him to come and fill us.